shorter than Dan. Yeah, that'll work. Thanks, Dan. Well, good evening, everyone. It is uh, it's good to see you. Um, as as we continue through our study in the uh, in the book of Lamentations, I want to uh, invite you to turn to Lamentations chapter two. As uh, we continue to look at um, the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God, and hope and suffering, and, and just as a reminder, uh, the word lament. Uh, means to to express sorrow, but it, but it's more than just to to kind of cry a little. I mean, when 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 we lament, it's it's from the the idea in the Hebrew is is from our inner being. It's it's from the core of who we are. Everything in us just cries out, and uh, that is what we find in the Book of Lamentations. It it is about. Um, God's people uh, crying out in the midst of suffering. And so um, uh, we know that there are different uh, causes for suffering, but ultimately all suffering is a result of sin. And what we're going to find in Lamentations chapter 2 is the suffering of God's people is a result of sin, and specifically it's a result of God's judgment of their sin. And so we're going to unpack it more, uh, but just keep that in mind. That That's the big context here is um, sin, uh, unconfessed sin, undealt with sin uh, leads to the judgment of God, which leads to the suffering of his people. And so we're going to look at uh, Lamentations chapter two, and uh, uh, I would encourage you to, uh, uh, to have your Bible open. And uh, this is from the New International Version. It says this, Jeremiah writes this, how the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord is like an enemy, and he has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy. They have raised a shout to the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. Now the Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament and together they wasted away. Her gates have sunk into the ground. Their bars he has broken and destroyed. 
Her king and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their head and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes fell from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. What can I say for you? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I might comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The prophecies they gave you were false and misleading. All who pass your way clap their hands at you. They scoff and shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They scoff and gnash their teeth and say, we have swallowed her up. This is the day we have waited for. We have lived to see it. The Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. Your wall, the, you walls of daughter Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every corner of the street. Look, Lord, and consider, whom have you treated like this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. As you summon to a feast day, so you have summoned against me terrors on every side. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. Those I cared for and reared, my enemy has destroyed. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And wow, Lord, what, what a passage of scripture. What a, um, yeah, might we even say shocking passage of scripture to read and and Lord to to see the effects of sin and judgment and God we would confess that a passage like this it challenges our heart it it challenges our perception and understanding of who you are and so Lord we would acknowledge that uh, God your uh, your ways are not our ways, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, you would give us understanding of 
your word, that you would give us understanding of, of who you are, and particularly in the context of Lamentations chapter 2, that we would understand who you are, God, and who we are in relation to you as your people, your church. And so we very humbly ask and pray that by your Holy Spirit that, Lord, you would please open our minds and give us understanding. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would soften our hearts that we might be molded and shaped by your word and by your spirit. Speak to us. Uh, we pray your people in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a challenging passage of scripture, isn't it? To, to, to see the suffering of the people of God, when we, when we see Jerusalem and daughter Jerusalem and, and Zion, all of these are phrases to describe the people of God, to describe the people of God. And, and when we see them suffering to this extent, and, and it's quite clear that their suffering is because of the judgment of God, um, yeah, it, it gives us pause, doesn't it? To step back and, and, and give a thought to uh, who God is and who we are and, and what it means to be under the judgment of a holy God. Uh, now, to, to, to set the context uh, for us, uh, let's remember uh, where, how we got to where we are. Um, 4,000 years, roughly, um, uh, ago, um, there was a man by the name of Abraham, so about 3,900 years ago. There was a real man by the name of Abraham who lived in the Middle East, and God appeared to, uh, to Abraham, and, uh, and, and he made Abraham a promise. It's called a covenant. He entered into an agreement with Abraham, and, and this is what God said to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your wife, Sarah, and you're going to have children. And this is what he said, and, and your descendants will be like the stars in the heavens. Like counting your descendants will be like trying to count the stars or trying to count the grains of sand on a beach. And, and this is key, what he says to Abraham, okay? And this is, remember now, this is about 3,900 years ago. He says this, he said, all of the nations will be blessed through your descendants, all right? Through your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, you just keep on going, right? He says, I'm gonna bless your people and the world, the nations will be blessed through you. I'm gonna bless you so that you can be a blessing. And this is critical to understand as you read through the Old Testament. Uh, and, and particularly in the area of idolatry, which we're going to talk a lot about tonight. And, and because, remember, God's plan was, listen, Abraham, your descendants, who will be called uh, the Jewish people, the Israelites, right? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a special relationship with this group of people. And through this special relationship, the gospel will be shared to all the nations of the world. So all of the, we call them the ites in the Old Testament, right? The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Amalekites and the Ammonites, right? These are all groups of people, nations of people. And none of them knew the one true God. And so God said, I'm gonna have a special relationship with you, Israel, and through you, all of these other nations are gonna see who I am and they'll have an opportunity to come and know me and love me. 
All right. And so uh, that's kind of the setup to where we find ourselves now in Lamentations chapter two. And we're going to see uh, four simple truths tonight. Here's number one. First of all, we see the reason for God's judgment, the reason for God's judgment. Look here uh, at verse 14 and notice what he says. He says, the visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The prophecies that get, they gave you were false and misleading. Uh, the, 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 he's saying, listen, the reason for judgment is because of idolatry, because you have now believed false prophets and a false message. And he says, the reason that I'm judging you is because you have left me the one true God. And, and at its core, the word idolatry is simply when you and I, when we replace uh, God with someone or something else, when we replace the position that God desires to have in our life and deserves to have in our life, when we replace him with someone or something else, it becomes an idol. And so it could be money. I mean, what are, what are idols we see in our culture today? I mean, we, we turn on the television and we, we have the idol of, of money. We have the idol of fame. Uh, we, we have the idol of, of sexuality and, and, and sex. We, we have the idol of materialism. We have the idol of selfishness. I mean, we could go on and on. And, and, and whenever we take one of these things and, and place them where God desires and deserves to be, it becomes an idol. When we become more devoted to someone or something else than we are to Jesus, it has become an idol. It could be wanting to please other people. It could be just wanting to live a life of comfort. It could be laziness. It could be a host of things. But but when we place that and desire that uh, more than we desire Jesus, it becomes an idol. And so we see the reason for God's judgment is idolatry. Um, look at this verse. This is Deuteronomy chapter 31. And, and this is Moses. And, and this is uh, Moses, right before Moses goes to be with the Lord. Uh, ben, if you could put that up, it's just the next passage of scripture on the slide there. Uh, thank you. And, and this, is, uh, this is Moses, and Moses uh, is about to die and go to heaven, uh, God has told him. And this would be 800 years before Lamentations, all right? 800 years. And look what, uh, look what said here. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors. That means he's about to die. And these people, meaning uh, the, the Israelites, who he's been with for 40 years in the desert, he says, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. And they will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And in that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Now, that is amazing. When you think that God said that 800 years before Lamentations chapter two, 800 years. And so uh, can you imagine what that must have felt like for Moses to hear that? Here Moses has faithfully served the Lord and served the people of God for 40 years in the wilderness, leading them out of slavery in Egypt. 
And, and they're now about to go into the promised land, the, the land the Bible says that was flowing with milk and honey, uh, the land that was promised to the descendants of Abraham. And he says, Moses, I just want you to know, unfortunately, when they cross over and they encounter the Philistines and the Jebusites and the Canaanites, when they, when they interact with these other groups, they will forsake me. And God predicted it 800 years before this was written. Which, by the way, let me say, the Bible says in the book of Psalms that God is slow to anger and rich in love. And, and, and before we want to criticize God for Lamentations chapter 2 and his judgment of the people, let's be uh, reminded that he held it all for 800 years. Uh, for 800 years, uh, God would raise up a man like Moses or Joshua. God would raise up a prophet and, and they would uh, declare the truth to God's people and God's people would repent and he would forgive them. And then shortly again, they would fall into idolatry and he would raise up a and they would repent and he would forgive. And this cycle has continued for 800 years. I, I tell you what, what I thought of uh, when I was thinking through that this week. Um, um, uh, my, my parents, when I was a child, they used to always give me what was called the three count. And so if I, maybe you do this with your kids, but if I was doing something wrong, they would be like one. And I usually didn't quit, you know, at one. And uh, they might say two. And um, if it was my mom, she would usually give me like two and a half, two and three quarters. Like there was extra grace before I got in trouble. My dad just went from one to three and usually skipped two. Uh, but it was the three count. It was like, you know, if you don't, if you don't straighten up by the count of three, son, you're going to be in trouble. Now, uh, the three count for Israel lasted 800 years. Can I just say that is a gracious God. That is a gracious God. God, slow to anger, rich in love. But he knew the time had come. And so the reason for his judgment is that uh, they had replaced him with idols. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, that brings us to number two. And it's this, not only do we see the reason for God's judgment, but we see the righteousness of God's judgment, the righteousness of God's judgment. Uh, look, at verse, uh, look at verse one, he says this, how the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Now, we, we might be tempted to say, well, was this, is this God having a temper tantrum? Like, is, is this a God whose ego is bruised and and because his ego's bruised, he, he's just taking it out on, uh, on, on humanity. Well, no, that, that would be more like uh, Zeus. That would be like the Greek god Zeus or Poseidon, who of course don't exist, but in Greek mythology, they're just fickle and, and they're prideful and they're arrogant. That, that is not what we have here. And we, and we need to be clear about that. that this is not a god uh, who has had his feelings injured and therefore is is lost his temper, okay? What we have here is a righteous God who fully understands the devastation of sin. And let me say that again. What we have here is a righteous God who fully understands 
the devastating consequences of sin. Um, uh, Romans 6.23 would say it this way. Uh, Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, it's uh, Ben, it's the next, there you go. Uh, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Paul tells you and I, the wages of sin is death. Uh, again, we, we see the reason for God's judgment, but we see the righteousness of God's judgment. Um, uh, idolatry, we might simply think, well, it's just a little statue. Like it's probably just like a little statue they put up here on the shelf. What's the big deal? That, that's not how idolatry worked. Uh, in among the Philistines. It's, it's not how idolatry worked among the Canaanites and the Melekites. In fact, idolatry um, almost always, in any research I've done, uh, I, I found that the idolatry of these nations, these peoples, always had two things in common. One was prostitution and promiscuity. It, 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 uh, it, it involved um, the, the realm of um, being unfaithful, particularly men, unfaithful to their spouse. Uh, that was a key part of idolatry. And so uh, and they would actually do the immoral stuff at the place where they would worship the false gods, at the, the false temple. And secondly, what you'll find often occurred uh, among idolatry in this time was child sacrifice, was child sacrifice. And in fact, we'll even see if you read through the book of Judges, and as, as you see where the Bible says in the book of Judges that as they embraced idolatry, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what do you see in the book of Judges? You see promiscuity. You see it was Samuel, right? I mean, not Samuel, Samson, sorry. You see it was Samson, right? It's, it's his passion is promiscuity. And then you see child sacrifice. And so here's... Here's where the righteousness of God's judgment comes in. And that is that God knew that, listen, if you embrace this idolatry, it's going to destroy your marriages. It's going to destroy your children. It's going to destroy your homes. And it's going to destroy who you are. And it's going to take your heart and it's going to become evil and wicked towards one another. And, and so uh, don't miss this. This isn't just about God's holiness. I mean, that, that is, that's certainly the key is God's holiness, but it's also about the good of his people. We often will, will mention at Oikos that, you know, God is always working for his glory and our good. And this is what God knew about idolatry. It, it was not for his glory and it was not good for his people. Let me say that again. Idolatry was not for his glory. It replaced him but it was not good for his people. They literally killed their own children. These are the people of God. And, and remember, God is radically different. The one true living God says women are just as valuable as men, that, that women are not objects or tools, that, that women are not property, but women are created the image of God and women are special. And so uh, when you worship false gods and you incorporate uh, prostitutes, uh, you are going against the beauty of womanhood. God, God was uh, God was a feminist before feminism existed. And I mean that in the sense of 
that God has always placed value on women. And he says idolatry ruins that. But not only that, there's something radically different about uh, God, and that is God placed value on children. Do you remember when uh, the children came to Jesus? And do you remember what the disciples did? They shooed the children away. They're like, leave them alone, leave them alone. You remember what Jesus said? He rebuked the disciples and said, suffer the little children to come unto me. I love the fact that God loves kids. I love the fact that God loves kids. And so when God looked at idolatry and said, you are taking children and you're killing them, what are you doing? And so again, I want you to understand the reason for God's judgment was idolatry, but the righteousness of God's judgment. This isn't God just upset because they've replaced him with, with a false God. This is God upset because uh, they are not recognizing his glory and they are suffering and, and, and it's their own good that's at stake. And so uh, we see the reason for God's judgment. We see the righteousness of God's judgment. Uh, third, we see this. We see the reality of God's judgment. The reality of God's judgment. Uh, verse 17 says this. Um, if you can change the slide for me. Um, uh, the reality of God's judgment. Verse 17 says this. The Lord has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. We know 800 years. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. He says, the Lord has done what he planned. Uh, we, we, we see the reason is idolatry. We see the righteousness because it's about God's glory and our good. But now we see the reality. And what I mean by that is this. He said it would happen and it did. He said it would happen and it did. Uh, and, and sometimes it's easy for me to forget that God always does what he says he's going to do. God always does what he says he's going to do. And he told Moses 800 years before, he said, I will judge my people because of their idolatry. And you know what? I imagine maybe over, over those centuries, maybe people quit believing that. Maybe over those centuries, people thought, ah, God, God didn't mean it. Or did God even ever say that? And, and here he says, the Lord has done what he planned. Uh, we see the reality of God's judgment. Now, um, judgment is not something we maybe talk a lot about at Oikos. Uh, judgment is not necessarily a topic that, that we as believers talk about. And yet the, the Bible is pretty clear that, that judgment is real. In fact, look at this verse. This is 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10 is coming up on your screen. And it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Look at that again. So this is New Testament. This is the Apostle Paul. This, this is you and I, right? For we must all, that means everyone, every person that's ever lived, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And, and we know that there's, there's, this is usually referred to as the Bema seat of Christ. And some scholars think this will just be Christians. Some think it'll be everyone. 
uh, either way, that means we'll be there, those of us who love Jesus. But we know at the end of the book of Revelation, there's the separation of the sheep of the goats, right? And, and so uh, the world, everyone ever born, everyone who's ever lived, who's, who's breathed air on the planet Earth, one day we will be judged by a holy God. And, and I think sometimes if I'm not careful, I can become so fixated, and, and maybe that's not a right, the right word, but I can become so fixated on the grace and love of God that I forget that one day that myself and everyone included will stand before God as the righteous judge. Now, praise the Lord for those of us who know and love Jesus. We will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But can I say that doesn't give us a free pass in the sense of we will be judged for those things we've done and those things we have not done. We will give an account. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, we said that thousands of years ago, God met a man named Abraham. And he told Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed. So God's desire was to, to uh, speak his love through the nation of Israel. So um, Psalm 96.3 says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds to all peoples. Right, That's Psalm 96.3. So in Psalm 96.3, he tells the, the people of Israel, declare my glory to the nations my marvelous deeds to all people. That was their job, okay? Now, does that job still exist? The answer is yes. But when we get to the New Testament, that job has been now given to the church. That job has now been given to the church. The job initially was for the people of Israel, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deed to, to all the peoples. Now he has transferred that job to you and I, to the church, the capital C church, all around the globe, people who love and follow Jesus. Our job now is to declare God's glory and goodness to the world. It starts with our neighbors, it starts on the high street, and it goes to the other end of the world. Now, don't miss this. If we are not careful, the exact same sin that brought it to a, uh, to a standstill with the, the nation of Israel will bring it to a standstill among the church. In fact, the Bible says this. The Bible says judgment begins in the house of God. Isn't that interesting? Judgment begins in the house of the God. The New Testament says that the first people to be judged next time around won't start at the White House, they'll start at the church house. Because we now have been given the Great Commission. We've been given the responsibility to proclaim his glory and goodness. And I would submit that idolatry will be the temptation for us, just as it was for them. Now, it, it won't be an idol probably that's a golden statue. It'll be something much more insidious. It'll be something much more dangerous. It'll be my own complacency. It'll be my own pride. Uh, it, it, it'll be something much more subtle and much more wicked. See, a, a golden statue, I can spot a mile away. But my own pride can be a blind spot. And so uh, the reality of God's judgment he does what he says he will do. Uh, finally, uh, we see this together, church. 
We see the, the reason for God's judgment, the righteousness of, of his judgment, the reality. But lastly, we see the refinement of God's judgment, the refinement of God's judgment. Uh, look at verses 18 and 19. And he says this. He says, arise and cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. Uh, Jeremiah is saying it's not too late. Jeremiah is saying, uh, make yourselves right with God. Uh, this idea of crying in the night, let your heart pour out like water, lift your hands to him. He's saying, cry out to God. Uh, and, and we know the promise of God's word in, in, in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If, if, if we'll just lift up our hands, and, and that's the idea of surrender. If, if we'll surrender our will and our hearts to him, and if we'll weep over our brokenness and weep over our sinfulness, if we will confess our sins, he will forgive us. He will heal us and heal our land. And that's what we find here. God's judgment, again, it, it, it's much more than just punishment. God's judgment is always working for his glory and the good of those he judges. Uh, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this. It says, my child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. What a beautiful verse. Let's look at it one more time. My child, do not reject the Lord's discipline and do not be upset when he corrects you for the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. Uh, the, the Bible says something very similar in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the writer says, those God loves, he chastens. Those God loves, he disciplines. Uh, in fact, if if God didn't care about his people, he wouldn't, uh, the book of Lamentations wouldn't exist. Uh, if God wasn't a God of love, Lamentations chapter two wouldn't exist because in fact, it doesn't sound very loving, but don't miss this, God is love. Not he's loving, one John says he is love. Everything that flows out of him flows out of love, even his discipline. So those he loves, he corrects, he disciplines, he chastens. Why? For his glory and for their good. Uh, it's, it's funny how certain things from your childhood might just stay very vivid and clear for you. And, and, uh, and one of those kind of memories for me uh, was about going to the circus. And, uh, and I remember uh, it was our family had went to the circus and it was the first time I'd ever been to a circus. And I was so excited. I was probably about five years old. And we come out of the circus and I'm just buzzing. I mean, I'm just a ball of energy. And, uh, you know, I was jacked up on ice cream and chocolate and uh, I've got a stuffed toy and all these things. And I was so excited, we came out and we had to cross, we had to walk over a dual carriageway to get to the car park. And I was so excited and I was yelling circus, circus and all these things. And I 
bolted out into the dual carriageway. And um, the cars literally had to slam on their brakes and slid. And my dad came running and, and practically tackled me in the road and got me out of the road. And I mean, it was probably just a matter of a foot or two from the closest car. I mean, I never, ever stopped and looked like it never occurred to me. And, and so um, after my dad made sure I was OK, after he made sure I was all right, uh, I was disciplined. I was chastened. And I'll tell you what, um, uh, when it happened, it didn't feel loving. Like, well, if my dad loves me, why am I in trouble? Why, why is he upset? Why am I being punished? But, but let me tell you, and this is not an exaggeration, I never ran out in the street again. Like it, it never happened. Uh, and so what was my dad doing there? Well, my dad was upset. Why? Because he knew that a five-year-old running in the middle of a dual, dual carriageway, it, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. And so my dad disciplined me and I didn't enjoy the discipline. And I didn't like it. And even at five years old, I can remember just being really angry with my dad about it and thinking, you know, how he ruined the day and all those things. But it wasn't until later that you get older and realize like, no, I'm so glad he did that because the lesson I learned was, man, you don't run out in the middle of the road. Now, uh, don't miss this. This is, this is the Lord here. And this is the refinement of God's judgment. And God is saying, idolatry will ruin your marriage. It'll, it'll ruin your children. It'll ruin your culture. And I'm going to discipline you. And it is going to be hard. And it's going to be harsh. And you might doubt that I love you. And you might doubt that I'm good. But I'm doing this for my glory and for the good of my people. Uh, I want us to look at one last thing very quickly. And this is from Tim Keller. And we've seen this before many months ago. It's about idolatry. Because you might come away from tonight thinking, oh, that was really interesting. But, uh, you know, idolatry is not a temptation for me. But uh, I think this might change our minds. Um, Tim Keller writing about idolatry says that that idolatry can fall into one of four categories. And these are just his categories. He says success. Success is about power and influence and winning. He says approval, which is about affirmation and relationships. He says comfort, which is about freedom and privacy and lack of stress. He says control which is about self-discipline, standards, and certainty. And Tim Keller says that in, in Western culture, that our idols fall into those four categories. And I want, to, I want you to really look at your screen right now. I want you to say, Lord, have I made an idol out of one of those four things? And this is what he says, how you can determine that. Uh, look at Greatest Nightmare. He says, if, if your idol is success, then your greatest nightmare is humiliation because you, you, you want to be seen as successful in the eyes of others. You, you want other people to think you're a winner, that you're good at what you do. And so your greatest nightmare is humiliation. When your idol is success, the people around you might feel used because people are just a means. They're just a rung on the ladder so you can be successful. And he says, how might that come out in you? might come out as anger. When things don't go the way you want them to, you might respond in anger. 
if your idol is success? What about approval? He says, if, if for you, affirmation is the most important thing, you want people to like you, even more so, you don't want people to dislike you. He says, your greatest nightmare is rejection. Your greatest nightmare is that someone won't want to be your friend. Your greatest nightmare is rejection. He says, people around you might feel smothered. Why? Because you find, uh, you find your affirmation and approval in others. And so you're constantly seeking others out to approve of you. And how might that uh, affect you emotionally? Cowardice. In other words, it might be that you don't speak truth to people because you're afraid it'll upset them and they'll reject you. It might be you don't do the things you know you should do because you don't want to rock the cart. Maybe it's comfort. The idol of comfort, freedom, privacy, lack of stress. Your greatest nightmare is stress or demands. You just don't want to have a hassle in your life. So your greatest nightmare is stress. People around you might feel neglected because it's really not about them. It's all about you. It's, it's about your comfort if anyone brings discomfort into your life, then you put up walls to keep others at a distance. So those around you feel neglected. Your emotional problem might be boredom. And then lastly, control. Self-discipline, standards, certainty. Your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. You're a control freak. You, you want to know what's going on, when it's going on, how it's going on, and who's doing it. And you have to be in control. And for you, the greatest nightmare is not knowing. People around you might feel condemned. They might feel condemned. And your problem might be worry. See, because you have to control everything, but you can't, you're eating up with worry. As we, as we close out in prayer, I'll, we'll just say, let's, let's don't just disconnect and say, hey, that was a great preach, but that's, that's idolatry. That happened a long time, I know. But can I tell you that um, all of us can make idols out of success, approval, comfort, and control, so many other things. I want to challenge us as, as the family of God. Let's don't let these things replace who Jesus needs to be, should be, and wants to be in our lives. Remember what we said. The same thing that will sideline the gospel for us is the same thing that sidelined the gospel for the Israelites. And it was idolatry. Success will keep me from sharing the gospel. Because if I don't do good at it, what's that mean? Approval will keep me from sharing the gospel. Because what if someone rejects the message? Then they reject me. What about comfort? I just can't be bothered. What about control? Would these be things that would impact us from serving in the cafe? Would these be things that would impact us from sharing the hope and love of Jesus with a neighbor? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, only you know the answer to these questions. But I would be quick to speak from my own heart and say that, that Lord Jesus, my heart is prone to wander. And Jesus, I would confess that um, I am tempted daily to replace you, Jesus, with someone or something else. And the something else is usually me. The someone else is usually me. Lord, I would confess and say sorry for times, Lord, when I have made success and approval and comfort and control, when I have made them more precious than you, Jesus. 
Jesus, I would say sorry for times when I've wanted to be seen in a way that Jesus, you very seldom were seen. And Jesus, I would confess that in my whole heart that uh, the idols of my heart so often keep me from obedience to the Great Commission. And so Lord, thank you for the promise of your word that when we confess our sins, you forgive us and you restore us. And Jesus, may we always keep you first in our hearts, in our families, and at Oikos Church. We pray and ask this, Jesus, for your glory and our good. Amen. Thank you, thank you, Kenny, for bringing that.